Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We are very pleased to share with you two of our brilliant and experienced Murthy Law Firm attorneys uh, to discuss the topic of I-140 overviews and recent adjudication trends. Pam Janice, the attorney uh, coordinator in the Green Card Department, who's been with the firm close to a decade at this point, and uh, Jim McLaughlin, who's been with the firm half of a decade. Both of them had uh, years of experience before they joined our firm. Uh, but thanks to our amazing clients, like many of you on, the, on this conference call, their experience has quadrupled, if not multiplied by 10 times, because of the exciting, fascinating, complex array of issues that we're able to solve for you all as clients. So what's, what are we going to discuss today on I-140 uh, adjudication and overview with you all? One is, what exactly is the purpose of the I-140 petition? As most of you may already know, the I-140 petition really seeks to explain that the beneficiary or employee has all of the education and experience requirements as mentioned on the PERM labor certification form called ETA 9089. Second, the I-140 petition is also a wonderful opportunity for the employer to showcase that you as the employers have the financial wherewithal or ability to demonstrate your ability to pay the Department of Labor proffered wage to the employee, and also that you're obviously a bona fide legitimate employer. And third, it kind of is an indirect um, purpose of the I-140 petition is it really establishes the intent of the employee or the beneficiary to immigrate permanently to the United States. So from there, let's go to the next issue, which is what exactly is filed? Obviously, with an I-140 petition, we filed the I-140 petition. But Jim, what does the employer, what else does the employer have to establish? Sure, Sheila. So uh, like most things in U.S. immigration law, it seems simple at first. There's a checklist. You can follow the checklist. Um, but as we get into it, you'll see it gets a little more complicated than just including these documents. But initially, you need the I-140 applica uh, petition like you stated, Sheila. You need the filing fee. Currently, it's a $580. You need the original signed labor certification. Um, you also need the I-140 petition letter, uh, supporting evidence, uh, education experience, depending on what's required for the position, and the company's uh, financial docs of ability to pay. Um, there is some exceptions to that, such as if you're a self-petition, um, but most professionals file throughout labor certification where you're sponsored by your U.S. employer. Okay. And in terms of who exactly, what, what kind of an entity is allowed to file the I-140 petition, Jim? Well, you've got your U.S. employer. Um, you, it could be a nonprofit or a for-profit. Uh, it could be an institution of higher education. Could be an S-Corp, a C-Corp, mm -hmm, an LLC, correct. an LLP. Okay. That's right. And could even be a self-petition. So the alien themselves could file for themselves if they're filing the particular category. Like a national interest favor or an extraordinary ability. Exactly. Okay. 
mostly employers aren't involved, though occasionally employers might be involved with the NIW filing. Um, okay, so now let's move on to you, Pam. Processing. What is the processing time? How does it work, etc.? Well, the processing time, it always varies. It depends on primarily on the USCIS uh, current workload. And that information is generally available on the USCIS website, although what happens in reality may be a little bit different than what's being reported on the website. Right now, we're seeing an average, probably around eight to 10 months for regular processing of the I-140, although you may see a little bit of a difference between Nebraska and Texas from time to time. But you know that's what it is right now. That's not necessarily what it's going to be tomorrow. So if you ever are in the situation where you're looking to speed the process up, a person may be running up on an H-1B issue and they need an approved I-140 for a three-year extension. Or if an employee wants to get it approved so that their spouse can get an H-4 EAD, then it might make sense to um, file the case with premium processing. Premium processing means that you'll get an adjudication within 15 days, either an approval, a denial, or an RFE, a request for evidence. The downside is that it costs currently $1,225. The upside is it's a lot faster. Um, if you decide to file for premium processing, you need to include that filing fee check and the I-907 filing uh, form. If you're filing it initially, then it'll go to the premium processing unit uh, address as opposed to the lockbox, which is generally used for regular filing of I-140s. And uh, if you file a regular process, you always have the option at any time of upgrading to premium processing by, again, submitting the 907 and the, fee the filing fee, and that'll start your 15-day clock at that point. Uh, if for some reason you do get a request for evidence, that's going to reset your, your clock um, from the time that the response is received. But there are definitely benefits to doing the premium processing. I know a lot of times people are afraid because they hear stories, oh, if you file with premium processing, you're definitely going to get a request for evidence. And in reality, that's just not true. Odds are, if you get a request for evidence after filing it with premium processing, you are probably going to get it eventually doing it through regular processing. So it doesn't go to a supervisor and all of those things about the rumors that everybody hears about. It'll go to a supervisor. And sometimes they do it when they're backed up with their processing just to buy time and issue frivolous improper RFEs. And quite honestly, that really hasn't been our experience. Generally, where we see a request for evidence, it's because USCIS has a bona fide need for additional information. There are, of course, always instances where an RFE appears to be frivolous. But one of the benefits of the Premium Processing Center is that there's a direct line of communication. They have a direct phone number and a direct email where you can usually get a lot more information in a timely manner than you can with regular processing. And that's one of the huge advantages where you can actually speak to a live person, a supervisor, a person either working the file or somebody else in the department that can get an answer for you as opposed to just being uh, in a voicemail uh, loop that can happen. And another clarification from you, Pam, when you said 15 calendar days, I've heard people also talk about 15 business days. No, Have you found it almost always that it's calendar? Because it's that was what it was days. meant to be when they started gouging the poor companies and businesses with that extra 1225, which makes my blood boil. Because if they did their job properly in two to four weeks or six weeks as they used to uh, before they started premium processing, Companies wouldn't have to shell out the extra 1225. I call it legal 
legal bribe for incompetent service. Right. Uh, Pam, let, let me ask you, what happens if you don't have the original labor certification? Well, that's one of the few circumstances where you can't do premium processing, at least not initially. Um, in practice, if you are filing an amendment or a refiling after a denial or withdrawal, then you don't have the original labor certification anymore. It's with the original filing. And so USCIS can't, in practice, do premium processing because they need to physically remove the labor certification from that other file, which sometimes may be in the National Records Center, and then physically move it over to the new file. Um, in general, if you are doing a refiling at the same service center where the previous filing was done, um, you should be able to do the um, initial filing with premium processing. But we have received reports of those initial filings being rejected. So sometimes that requires follow-up with the premium processing unit, and sometimes it just requires waiting a while, giving them time, three or four months, to pull the file from the uh, records and get the original labor certification and then upgrade to premium processing at that time. Um, most of the time, these are being uh, f these cases are being filed uh, for the, using the same labor certification where you're seeing someone do an upgrade to EB-2 of a case that was previously eligible for EB-2 but filed as EB-3, or a downgrade of a case from EB-2 to EB-3 um, if the priority dates are more beneficial in that category. It also comes up a lot for successor and interest situations where a company has been bought by another company or has gone through some kind of merger um, and as a result, the new entity is continuing the case and they need to file the I-140 uh, petition. So those are some circumstances where you might not be able to initially file with premium processing, but you still have the option down the road of potentially upgrading to premium processing. Sounds like okay. quite a rock size, uh, quite a lot of uh, details to remember, but I'm sure many of you as employers that have done this are presumably familiar at least with some aspects of it, and it's a good opportunity to brush up your knowledge on when, what are the limitations and what are the potential risks or delays. So Jim, when an employer... Um, when an employer has to submit the education and experience evidence for an employee, what mm -hmm. kinds of evidence would they need to submit? Yeah, well, for the education, obviously, you need the degree to diploma. You need the transcripts. Uh, if it's a foreign degree, you need a tra uh, evaluation um, done for that. Often you'll want to use a reputable evaluation service and one that often references the AcroEdge database. Um, if for experienced occupation, uh, USCIS is looking for experienced docs from the prior employers that list the title, the dates of employment, um, and the specific job duties. Generally speaking, we see in practice that getting letters, they have the title, they have the uh, dates of employment. However, they're usually lacking on the detailed job duties. So often you need to include secondary and affidavits. Okay. Um, affidavits need to be a self-affidavit two colleague affidavits that attest to that time period, and then any additional secondary that you can get. Um, you know, if you have that experience letter that includes the uh, title and the dates of employment, that'll suffice. But if it's a case where you can't get anything at all, then pay statements, W-2s, offer letter, resignation letter, anything you can gather. Okay. Um, so, and let's quickly touch upon the ability to pay. As you know, that's like a, one of the big, big issues that often comes up for the I-140 petitions, where the USCIS looks at the current salary or wage level that should be paid to the employee. And in order to meet that, you as the employer would need to show that 
if the person's not already on your payroll or working for the company, then you need to show that you have net income and or net current assets that will show that you can actually meet the prevailing wage and satisfy the ability to pay test. And the primary evidence generally is tax returns of the employer uh, and W-2s if the employee is already getting paid at or above or higher than the prevailing wage uh, or and or audited financial statements for larger companies that have audits or annual reports or for a company with 100 or more employees, they, a letter from the chief financial officer is permissible, though sometimes, even though the regulations allow it, we've seen the USCIS sometimes come back and say that that's not always sufficient. So it's good to have additional information or availability of additional documents. And the secondary or additional evidence can include like bank statements, the P&L or profit and loss statements, personnel records showing the salary and of this employee and other employees, et cetera. Um, so I don't know if Pam or Jim want to add anything more to this, but if not, we'll get into a recent trends in adjudication. I think the big recent trend in adjudication is continuing on with what you were just talking about, which is the ability to pay. Um, we this is something that you know no it never goes away it is always USCIS is uh, one of their primary interests in looking at the I-140 just like you were talking about and um, what come what where the trick comes up is when your financial documents may not necessarily show the full fig the full picture of um, how positive the company's ability to pay to meet their um, wage obligations is. Um, and so that's when you have to start uh, looking outside of that narrow little checkmark box um, that we were just listing and see what other ways are there that the employer can uh, explain their ability to meet those obligations. Uh, now, USCIS actually has given us a little bit of a roadmap for that. Um, in uh, May 2015, a proposed I-140 RFE template was released. It hasn't been uh, implemented yet, but it's a good guideline for people when they're dealing with um, tricky situations. Does USCIS <coughs> issue RFEs based on those guidelines? Because I remember in past years, whenever there was uh, any kind of a guideline or any kind of re proposed regulations, miraculously, they would put that into the RFEs and we would be getting so upset and annoyed because it really shouldn't, is not the law yet. Yeah, I've seen it as well in some of my cases and cases mm -hmm. that come from externally that mm -hmm. uh, it appears they've actually implemented this I-140 RFE template already. So it's a, that, that, that template is a good, I, a good guideline for what USCIS is looking for when you're trying to demonstrate um, that you have sufficient income or sufficient assets or su sufficient access to assets when you're talking about a sole proprietorship or an individual employer or a limited partnership. For example, you know, I'm a sole proprietorship. I have a vested interest in making sure that this business is going to continue to support myself and, you know, my employees because that's, it's my business. So um, my, my own assets, my own expenses, my own, uh, um, funds are a potential source of, uh, of, of, of assets for the, my company to rely on. And so, for example, in that circumstance, USCIS is looking for my household living expenses. How can I will be able to, how will I be able to continue to support myself while also meeting um, the obligations of this business? Um, 
Another example is, uh, you know, where I am currently employing someone on a temporary basis or as an independent contractor or um, I have to have a temporary H-1B employee in this role before I can hire this person that I want to sponsor for a green card. That expense right there, those funds that I'm expending on a temporary basis are funds that I could be using to meet this individual's wage obligation because I want to hire them, I just am not able to yet. So in that circumstance, USCIS is going to want to see the person that's in that temporary position, evidence that it is a temporary position, and evidence of the expense that I am putting towards it. Um, the other things that they talk about in that uh, in that RFE template is, you know, uh, is there something discretionary like officer compensation? demonstrating that it is discretionary, demonstrating that it is sufficient, that you're still meeting your obligations while also being able to reapportion those wages, that those uh, that compensation if need be. And then, of course, overall, the totality of the circumstances. What else can you provide to show USCIS that it is more likely than not that you could meet this wage obligation if you had to? Okay. Absolutely. I'd like to add on that as well. You know, some employers will have a down year, um, and that can be used as well to make the argument that, okay, this year we're ha- or this past year uh, we were having a tough time. However, the prior years we certainly had sufficient income, net income growth, uh, net current assets, and next year and the years after we expect the same. So that can also be used in the argument. But it's still totality. discretionary. It's not automatic. So you have to be the cleanest and safest way, obviously, is to show that year upon year upon year, you're able to either pay that person the full salary or that your prof tax returns show sufficient, uh, I guess, AGI, adjust gross income after all of the expenses, but before payment of taxes, that you have the wherewithal financially to pay, meet that payroll for that person. Right. And it's in addition to that, not only are you sh- trying to show the ability to pay for that beneficiary that you're sponsoring, that 1I140, if you file multiple I-140s, USCIS uh, can open up an inquiry to what we call an ability to pay everybody. Um, and what they're looking for is the cumulative amount for anybody that you're sponsoring. And if there's uh, a difference between the proffered wage and what you're actually paying them, they want to see that cumulative total that you can show the ability to pay for everybody. That's yeah. a lot of onerous. That's very onerous and burdensome for employers. I mean, I can understand on the one hand you want to do it, but each case should meet meet its own. But I guess they're trying to be practical, saying, hey, if you've done 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 of these and you're using the same $100,000 to show ability to pay for all of the 20 people, it's not going to work, especially if it's future job. If it's all currently, they're currently making the full salary, then it's a no-brainer. It should be easily approvable without asking you to get proof of all of the other employees. Right. I mean, the RFE template that I was talking about before is basically saying that it should only be issued if the employee isn't working for the employer or if they are not earning the proffered wage. If they are, then this this uh, this kind of RFE that right. Jim's talking about really it doesn't apply. And do but, they send give it issue it? Oh, yeah. No, we, we see these issued all the time, especially where an employer will do a sudden burst of filings. There are some employers mm. that will on a regular basis say, okay, now I'm going to do um, all of my green card cases for the year. And so all of a sudden you'll see a rush of I-140 filings all at the same time. And so USCIS will see that and say, wait a minute, this employer is filing 20 cases. And for each of these people, the person's being paid $10,000 less than the offered wage. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure they actually have that $200,000 in hand. Right. And the basis for that really is USCIS is wondering if it's a bona fide job offer. 
That's the basis for this, their justification. So one of the good practice tips that we recommend to people is that they keep track of the number of beneficiaries that they've sponsored, what the prevailing wage is, what they've been paid in the past, and make sure that the finances cover it um, and in total. It's one of the things that we like to address with employers up front, see what their tax returns look like, see what the person is being paid, make sure that the employer can support their assertion that, yes, they have the ability to pay this. Right, mm-hmm. and, and employers should also, also keep in mind that once the I-140 is filed, that job offer remains open, and your obligation to show your ability to pay remains open unless the individual receives their green card or you withdraw your I-140. You're withdrawing the offer at that point in time. So um, for employers who may be having an issue with this or do multiple filings, they'll want to keep track, like Pam said, of who they filed for, but then also if the job offer is no longer available or potentially the employees moved on and there's no intention for to hire them back later down the road, then they may want to withdraw that I-140 to relieve that wage obligation. Okay. And so we also see situations where in, when financial documents have to be shown to use as evidence We can submit federal tax returns, audited financial statements, or annual reports. Uh, And USCIS generally focuses on net profits and net current assets, as we talked about earlier. So what kinds of secondary evidence are allowed to be submitted, Pam? Well, first of all, the USCIS does not like secondary evidence. They want to see those primary documents. Um, If not, they want to know why those primary documents are not available. So, for example, it may be that the company has requested an automatic extension of time to file. So USCIS is going to want to see that 7004 form showing that this year's tax return is not yet available. That's why this alternate evidence should be considered. So that would be the previous year's tax return the extension form for this year, and then whatever secondary evidence you have, such as profit and loss statements, bank statements, lines of credit, capital infusions into the company, uh, quarterly returns, anything, anything that shows that it's more likely than not that the employer has the ability to meet their wage obligations. And if the... um, If the employer has been paying this person consistently at the wage, that right there overcomes any negative financial uh, statements, as long as they've been paid the offered wage from the time it was filed all the way through the process. With the secondary evidence, um, the whole point is that it is secondary. You need to make an argument for why it should be accepted. And that's where the things that we were talking about before um, come into play. Are you able to make a strong enough argument for why USCIS should accept this? Is it an off year, like Jim was talking about? Was there a significant expenditure for research and development? Did they um, have some kind of major traumatic event that caused a single, you know, bad year? Can you provide documentation for it? And can you show why it is reasonable to expect that next year and the years beyond that are going to be better? What about the issue about the degree when it's conferred, the date, but why is that and when is that relevant and how has that created problems? Well, this is a recent trend that we've been seeing. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, historically USCIS has accepted um, the day a provisional certificate is given, say, such as in India. There could be many years between someone uh, completing all degrees for all requirements for a degree, but not actually going to the commencement ceremony for a year or two later. 
Um, historically, it seemed USCIS was accepting the provisional certificate that stated all requirements for the degree were conferred, um, uh, were completed, and then any experience thereafter could be utilized. So this generally comes up when someone's uh, qualifying for EB2 uh, for a bachelor's and five years of experience. And the problem arises when some of that five years of experience is after completing all requirements for the degree, but prior to actually um, going to that commencement ceremony and obtaining that diploma. Right, and the USCIS is actually currently looking at this issue because it has been brought to their attention that in many countries, the provisional certificate is actually the real completion of the education, completion of all the coursework. The transcripts show that the only thing missing is that the person, because of maybe having to come to the US to study, the masters or traveling, didn't attend just that actual ceremony and get the diploma at the mass commencement ceremony or convocation, as I think they call it in India and even here. That's right. So, okay, so so that's an interesting new issue, but USCIS has said that they will look at it at headquarters level because they realize that maybe they're not being very fair to employers and employees on this issue. Right, so as a general tip, just to, to complete that, is when you're looking at whether somebody uh, qualifies for the position you're sponsoring, right now it's better, probably better to be safe than sorry and just go with the confirmant date on that diploma until USCIS finally declares their decision on this issue. Okay, or some nice good lawsuits are always welcome as well if they're appropriate cases, if it's important and you cannot prove what you can show because we should never be afraid to demand justice, especially when we know that the government is clearly wrong and is doing something in violation of the statute or regulations or just clear, clear common sense and the statute and the regulations, which happens from time to time. The next issue we want to touch upon is educational equivalency where we've seen that the USCIS has been issuing RFEs when the US equivalency of the foreign degree or degrees is not clear in the initial evidence that's filed with the I-140 petition. And especially in cases where, for example, a three-year BSc degree and then a two-year MSc degree from a country like India, we try to combine the two. So it's a combination of two different degrees in order to equate to the required bachelor's degree for the position which we now show is the equivalent of bachelor's, and then we have to show the five years experience. Keep in mind that combination degrees is automatically a red flag in many cases. And also that since different countries have different degree programs in the UK, uh, in India, in Canada, sometimes it's three-year programs. In the US, it has to be equal, equivalent to a four-year education. So not all degrees from different countries. Also, if it's a three-year from India, sometimes they give us a harder time than they might for a three-year from the UK or three-year from Canada. So they, they have different sort of uh, tests where they will equate to the U.S. four-year college degree education. And how does this work in terms of, have you seen examples, Pam and Jim? I mean, this is something that never goes away. This has been a continuing issue ever since Matter of Shaw years and years ago. What you really need to do is look at the overall secondary education system in the country. Uh, for example, you know, Germany and the UK generally have a 13-year program prior to, um, prior to university education. And in those circumstances, generally a three-year bachelor's degree is considered equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree because in the U.S. it's normally a 12-year program of high school. Whereas 
for example, like you said, India, normally it's a 12-year program, and then you have three-year or four-year degrees. So it's important to know what the overall structure of education in that country is. And based off of that, you'll see what USCIS considers equivalent. And USCIS, they're continuing to go by the ACRO EDGE database as essentially gospel. That is that is what determines whether foreign education is equivalent. But at the same time, you need to be very careful because sometimes an issue will come up where, for example, in the ACRO EDGE database, it says that a one-year postgraduate diploma from a university in India is equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's degree, whereas sometimes you'll run into the problem with USCIS saying, is a diploma actually a degree? So you have to go by the AcroEdge database, except for where USCIS takes a different opinion. It's important to know what what both are. Sounds pretty complicated. Is there any any other example that you can help shed light on this, Jim? Well, uh, it's key to you know, and this is why you want to hire the Murthy Law Firm. It's key to know what the past experience has been with USCIS. Um, if you get a three-year bachelor's degree and a uh, from India and a two-year master's, that generally speaking is going to be equivalent to a U.S. bachelor's. Um, similar, if you've got a three plus three from India, that would be a U.S. master's. But as Pam said, not everything that's inaccurate is what USCIS is following. So you really want to be sure um, that you talk to somebody who who's been through the process before and knows what the current processes are. Okay. Okay. And. You said something about the acro evaluations when we were talking about this, that sometimes it can create um, more problems or that acro, it's been changing some of it. Right. So acro edge used to be able to get an evaluation from acro edge itself. Um, however, they've stopped actually issuing those acro edge. So you do need to use a reputable evaluation service. Um, often we recommend ha- making sure that reputable service at least utilize the acro edge database in their own evaluations. Okay. So next we move on to experience evidence. And with this, we've often found the best evidence is obviously a letter from the prior employer on the company or the employer's letterhead, which should include the company's full legal name or the name or how they do trading, doing business as, with the company's address and phone and contact information, signed by somebody who's authorized to represent the company for that process. So whether it's the president or the head of HR or chief operations manager, stating the employee's name, the dates of employment, the job title, and the job duties. Because if we are saying we need five years experience in these job duties for the EB2 classification, and we don't know which date the person was doing what kind of job duties, that could be potentially problematic. What about co-worker affidavits? How does that work? Well, this comes up when you can't get that ideal letter, which quite honestly happens a lot. There aren't a lot of employers out there that, um, as a matter of course, will always provide a letter with all of this documentation. But it's important that the person first make the effort because a recent trend we've been seeing with USCIS is they want to see that you actually tried to get it. So that would be an email or a letter showing that you tried to contact them and they didn't respond or they responded saying, no, we can't, this is not our policy. Or if the company has gone out of business, 
proof that the company has gone out of business, a press release showing that they were acquired or um, some sort of online database showing that they are no longer in business, something to show it is not possible to get the letter in the format that the USCIS wants. And then once you've established that you tried and were unable to, then that's when these affidavits come up. You need two affidavits from people with direct personal knowledge that you were working for that job in that place. Generally, that's going to be co-workers, people who are also working for that company. And generally, it sh- those affidavits, which should be sworn statements notarized, would need to contain the same kind of information as the company letter would have had the dates of employment, the name, the job title, the job duties, and how this person had that direct knowledge. I know that Jim was working as a lawyer at the Murthy Law Firm from this date to that date. Until his retirement. (laughs) Until he retired, (laughs) because I was working with him the entire time. Um, And I know that he was working on green cards because we were in the green card department together. Um, Now, in some cases, you're not able to get a coworker affidavit. Maybe you no longer work with them or they've moved to a different company. Maybe you were placed at a client site and nobody else from the same company was at that same client site. Well, did you know anybody who was working at the client site? They know that I was working as an IT programmer at Company X because they were an employee of Company X and they know that I was placed during that time because they were working on the same project. It's important to look at the specific circumstances and say what is the best available evidence. And then in addition to those coworker affidavits, you also need to provide corroborating evidence, secondary evidence. I think Jim mentioned it earlier, W-2s, pay stubs, uh, immigrant, immigration documents, an H-1B petition approval or a petition letter. Um, you know, if you were placed at a client site, they here's the letter I got from the company saying, hey, we're going to place you at this client site. Any surrounding documentation showing that you know, yes, this statement is true. Here's proof that I actually did work for this company during that time. Um, and it's important to try and gather as much of this up front as possible. So because if you only submit the secondary evidence, the USCIS is going to ask for, where's the proof that you tried to get the primary evidence? Where are the colleague affidavits? Where is corroborated evidence showing that you, you know, the statements in these colleague affidavits are true? We've even seen instances where USCIS has asked for evidence that the people providing those affidavits actually worked for those employers. You know, experience letters for them, uh, corroborated evidence for them, W-2s, pay stubs, things like that. So you've got to plan for this That's crazy. That could go on and on and on from each level. It's kind of a little crazy. It's a rabbit hole sometimes. It is. And I guess it would make more sense if they felt that the employer was being investigated or non-trustworthy and maybe... Is the is the standards much are the standards much higher in that type of situation? Oh yeah, situation? absolutely. If uh, an old uh, employer of yours is being investigated by USCIS, then they're definitely going to require a more onerous documentation than typical. Okay, so one of the other things that we've been seeing more recently, I guess, is sort of this whole employer-employee relationship, which I know that many of you, as employers of H-1B employees, have been seeing this employer-employee control. And it was not it's not as frequent as in past years, but it's good to keep it in mind. I think soon after the Newfeld memo, it became like almost a matter of course. Then again, it sort of reduces again. It sort of rears its ugly head from time to time. Um, So we've been seeing I-140 RFEs that ask about this issue. 
And so you as an employer needs to make sure that you continue to keep the evidence of how you as the employer or the employer's agent, if there's a supervisor, supervise and monitor the work of the employee beneficiary for the I-140 petition. Remember, we're not talking H-1s now. Even if you if the employees are working at a client site. And so this is very, very similar to the 11 criteria outlined in the Newfeld memo. Um, you want to try to meet or hit upon all of those issues um, and ensure that the H-1B, the work site, the location, all of that match up and that the company has policies and procedures that prove that the company or the employer supervises and controls the work of its employees, even if they're at remote client sites or other locations. Uh, so we're trying to wrap up because we're very sensitive to the fact that we try to wrap up between 30 to 45 minutes and we're right around a little over 35 minutes right now. And so um, I want to take this opportunity to sort of share with you that we are truly honored and it's been a privilege to share some of the information about I-140 processing and filing and the do's and don'ts and you're hearing from two of our absolute top-notch experts here at the Murthy Law Firm in both Pam Janice and Jim McLaughlin. And we would be honored to continue to help you as an employer in filing PERM green card cases and H-1s because that is pretty much primarily what both Pam, Jim, and the entire staff of about 20, 30 people with attorneys and paralegals focus on at the Murthy Law Firm, besides an, an equally uh, astute staff similarly doing the non-immigrant petitions, the H-1s, the L-1s, and other non-immigrant petitions. Um, so I hope you guys are going to have a fantastic fall. Um, thank you for joining us and making time to join us today, and we look forward to continuing to help you. Have a wonderful day.